Hello and welcome back to the Joint Venture Podcast, Inspiration Insights. I am joined this week by our senior analyst, Dila Jibichi. Hi, Oliver. And by our senior reporter, Zachary Skidmore. Thank you, Oliver. This week, we have um, a lot of stories from the UK. We're going to be taking a look at National Grid ESO's latest plans to deal with their backlog, as well as quite a few deals happening in the Celtic regions, Ireland and in Wales. We also have our PPA update. Zach has brought us a plethora of PPA stories to work through. Also on this episode, we are going to be talking about AI. It's in the air at the moment. How does AI affect the energy consumption of data centers? And what does that mean for the renewables which power those sites? But as usual, we begin with the news. Zach, what have you got for us? So I've got a few stories. Um, The first being a collaboration agreement signed between Corrales Energy and Irish Utility ESB on the development of a 130 megawatt onshore wind farm in Wales. The proposed project, named the Ibrin Wind Farm, would be lo- will be located close to the Neath Port Talbot in South Wales, with the scheme comprised of 18 wind turbines. The two companies are currently preparing to launch a consultation process on the project, ahead of formalising a plan to apply for planning permission. This is the second deal ESB has announced in the past week. They uh, announced a landmark Irish offshore deal with renewable giant Orsted to co-develop offshore wind capacity off the Irish coast. The 50-50 joint venture will result in the partners working towards the development of up to 5 gigawatts of capacity spread across a number of projects in the Irish Sea. It's expected that the new Orsted and ESB partnership will bid in the next Irish offshore auction, which is due to commence in the next few months. The Irish government recently announced the winners of its first offshore renewable electricity support scheme auction process in May with EDF Renewables, RWE, Statcraft and Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners all gaining capacity in the hotly contested process. It's interesting that ESB are getting involved in markets outside of their kind of core Irish base with that uh, Ebrin plant in Wales clearly working with these partners to produce these offshore wind uh, farms in the Irish Sea. There's a lot of spillover and skills between both Ireland and Wales there, so it's nice to see some of that from my home country. Yes, um, commonality with uh, a number of different um, companies. Um, I spoke to Source Galileo, who are actually developing, I think it's in the Celtic Sea and the Irish Sea. So there's a lot of um, synergy between the two jurisdictions, given that they're so close together. I guess the only issue being um, the differing regulations between the two um, jurisdictions, one being in the EU and now the UK being solo. It, it is, and that's certainly something that I think we should probably look into more in the future. Definitely. Divergence across the Celtic Sea. An idea for, for a feature in the future. However, I think there's more that we should cover today in the news. And what's National Grid announced? So National Grid ESO, the UK's electricity systems operator, has set out plans to introduce reforms that will act to speed up grid connection times for renewable projects. The changes are being drawn up to speed up waiting times by as much as a decade, as slow grid connection times are a problem across not, not only across the UK, but Europe as a whole. The wait times in the UK have been as long as 15 years for some renewable projects, an amount of time that has the ability to fatally undermine the projects. The National Grid wants to move forward by effectively triaging projects that are applying for grid connections in order to ensure that only viable projects can move through the process much more quickly than in the past. The system's operator will ask for regular updates from developers on project milestones, from financing 
the planning permission so an organization knows which projects are likely to need grid connections when while being aware of the projects that are likely to fail projects that are falling behind on these key milestones will move backwards in the queue ultimately to the point of leaving it if there is no progress we had an analysis out last week which touched on a lot of these points. I think uh, Dilo was behind um, a lot of the research on that one, looking at the first-come-first-serve system that uh, connections in the UK are currently running on. Dilo, do you think this news will be welcomed? Uh, a triage of projects and clearing space for new developments, will that be welcomed by the market, do you think? Yes, certainly. I think at this point, um, any sort of efforts towards alleviating some of the pressures within that um, area will be welcomed. Um, I think First Come, First Serve has not been delivering the results um, industry participants have been looking for um, for a while now um, and other ideas around such as First Ready, First Connect kind of approaches, like the projects that are actually ready for them to connect in a prioritized fashion would be actually a much more effective approach. So I think an important thing to note is not only the connection to the grid, but the grid infrastructure itself. Um, recently, um, the chief executive of Ofgem, John Brearley, um, branded the UK grid as unacceptable. Um, renewable energy developers as, well, developers as well have accused the government of a lack of vision in planning of the grid and expressed concerns of the wait time of 15 years has just made it incredibly difficult for them to attract any investment into their projects. Um, Ofgem have estimated that between 60 and 70% of high voltage transmission schemes never connect to the grid and it's found that more than half of those projects in the queue have had to wait five years or more to be offered a connection date. I think despite these announcements, UK Grid alike, many others, seems wholly unprepared for the influx of renewable capacity expected by 2030. Well, there is an ongoing debate about how to Who's, find the solutions to the, this problem of grid overcapacity. And who, is it the, the developers or is it the government who, whose owner should be placed on to actually modernise the grid in order to allow for these renewable energy projects to be effectively connected in a much more prompt fashion? I think... The fact is, a lot of grid infrastructure is not seen as a bankable asset within, um, within especially asset managers. So they're more likely to go towards a um, a project which is going to provide a return for their investors, rather than investing in the grid, which will have ultimately more long term benefits. And I think this comes back to the auction scheme by which the government does um, award um, renewable capacity in the UK. It's come under criticism a lot of times, not just by us, for having lots of different disconnected parts where you're just looking at price in the auction scheme itself and then worrying about stuff like grid connections at a later time, whereas many other systems, the Netherlands comes to mind, has a much more cohesive, all-inclusive system. But you, when you go through the process, you have all of the permits and connections by the end of it. Yeah, I think a lot of um, governments have shown a bit more um, desire to improve grid infrastructure. I know Spain has brought in some reforms last year in order to speed up the process, especially within their solar industry. So it'll be interesting to see over the next couple of years if any real effort is made by governments across Europe and the world to improve overall transmission to facilitate uh, more effective renewable integration into the grid. It's a good point, because even if you do connect all these projects to an overcapacity grid, that doesn't necessarily solve the basic problems of you've got too much power moving through a system that was not designed for it. Yeah, so I guess you need um, other technologies in order to facilitate that, such as battery energy storage or long duration storage, which is going to allow for these um, renewable energy systems to completely facilitate um, 
or the energy transition generally, just allowing us to completely move away from fossil burning fuels towards renewable energy. It all comes back to the energy transition. Um, thank you for that, Zach. What else have we got in the news pile? Speaking of um, connecting to the grid, infrastructure fund JLEN launched its first grid-scale battery energy um, storage project. The scheme, located in Dundee, Scotland, has 15 megawatts of capacity. The Scottish grid in particular is one of those that is going to be over capacity in no time at all, and projects like this will help alleviate some of that in the short term and better manage that load. But eventually there's going to have to be either a huge change in the way that energy is produced and used, looking at alternative routes for energy like hydrogen, for example, or there's going to just have to be a complete reconstruction of the whole grid infrastructure. Indeed. We are bringing back our PPA update. Uh, Zach has also been looking out for the most notable deals signed within the last couple of weeks. Zach, what did you find mm. this week? So four prominent um, PPAs come to mind. Um, the first being Innerjex and MMBC, who, linked to, who inked a 30-year power purchasing agreement with Canadian public utility Hydro-Quebec. The two firms have agreed to a 30-year take-or-pay PPA indexed to 30% inflation with the Canadian company for electricity produced for the 102 megawatt MU2 wind project set to be built in Avion. As an extension to the existing 150 megawatt wind facility commissioned in 2016. The second PPA was between Cordello Power and Microsoft to sell 100% of its electricity from an upcoming wind project. The Canadian renewable power producer noted that it completed the construction loan facility and tax, equi tax equity commitment from the Moraine Sands Wind Project located in Mason County, Illinois. The site, which is expected to complete construction later this year, has a capacity of 171 megawatts. The um, construction loan facility, which was $301 million, was provided by affiliates of MUFG, National Bank of Canada, Bank of Montreal, and Export Development Canada. Another PPA of note was between Silbani Stillwater, who concluded its first power purchasing agreement and achieved financial close on an 89-megawatt wind project in South Africa. The project, known as the Castle Windflorm, is located in the Northern Cape province of South Africa and will supply power through a wheeling agreement with Electric Public Utility ESCOM. Under the terms of the 15-year offtake deal, the, wind, the Castle Wind Farm will be funded, built and operated by a consortium consisting of the African Infrastructure Investment Managers through its renewable en energy project development and delivery platform, African Clean Energy Developments and Retail Renewables. Final PPA was between Italian renewable developer Renitas, who announced that they assigned a power purchasing agreement with Amazon for its wind farms in Finland. As part of the deal, the US-based giant will act as a corporate off-taker for the power generated from two of Renata's offshore wind farms in Finland upon their completion. And once in operation, the two wind farms are expected to produce a combined 174 gigawatt hours of electricity annually. Thank you very much for the update, Zach. It seems that everyone has been talking about AI in the last few weeks and months, and the advancement of AI is certainly going to change many industries across the world, the global economy, and change how we do things on a day-to-day -day basis at a very fundamental level. Dealer has been looking into how AI is developing, and specifically how AI relates to data centers, one of those core assets we talk about all the time. So, Dealer, how has your research gone? It's gone well, yeah. So we have joined the AI conversation officially as well. 
Um, yeah, so I've kind of focused my article around um, looking at how AI will impact the carbon and water footprint of data centers. Um, and, you know, obviously sort of the co current conversations are mostly revolving around its cult cultural and societal consequences. But I think it's also quite important to acknowledge that there is also an environmental impact going on here. And AI technologies such as ChatGPT obviously have revolutionized various aspects of our lives and will continue to do so. Um, but some of these consequences um, can be overlooked quite often. And as the world transitions into a digital economy, um, AI and machine learning technologies such as ChatGPT continue to become quite integral to the central nervous system of the digital economy. And it's also more and more important because search engines and like these tech giants like Google, Microsoft, and also Chinese um, Baidu have announced that they will be integrating some of these AI technologies into their search engines. So um, some of these consequences will only become more important as we move forward in our AI journey. Mm, Microsoft has, of course, already integrated its own version of ChatGPT's OpenAI into its Bing search. And you've just got to think what kind of ad additional computational steps that adds every time someone does a search on that platform. And yeah, the footprint of that can escalate quite quickly if, if it's not being paid attention to. So what are um, the carbon emissions of those AI data centers look like? So obviously there is huge benefits of digitalization and specifically as we move towards decarbonization, um, their energy use and emissions um, become quite critical. So according to uh, the International Energy Agency um, published in 2020, they've said that the fundamental infrastructure of data centers and data transmission networks have contributed approximately 1% of energy-related greenhouse gases. And that needs to have by the year 2030 uh, in its ambitious net zero scenario. That's absolutely huge. That puts it on a level playing field with bits of the traditional economy, the energy intensive like uh, steel and cement production. And it does maybe like initially it might sound quite trivial saying 1%, um, but it really, really isn't just like you say. Um, and especially also because of the rapid expansion of the AI industry, it's led to growing concerns about its carbon emissions. So between 2017 and 2020, data center power consumption carbon emissions actually doubled in those three years. And considering that those data centers that now support AI require quite a significant, they require quite significant computational capabilities that actually do lead to surge in energy demands and carbon emissions as well. Um, so you just got to think every sort of leap we have in that sort of computational power, there's also going to be a leap in the energy consumption those data centers will have. Um, and these facilities will typically operate at a maximum util utilization as well, drawing between 20 and 40 megawatts of power consistently, consistently, which is equivalent to powering around 16,000 households as well. And the carbon footprint of AI models, particularly the large language models like GPT, um, ChatGPT3, is quite substantial. Just training this AI model can emit over 626 thousand pounds of carbon dioxide. The training process for ChatGPT3 consumed um, about 1.287 gigawatt hours of electricity that resulted in carbon emissions of the equivalent of those generated by 110 cars in the US over the span of a year. 
So with the increase in the in the computational needs of these uh, large language models for the training of them and also the ongoing operations, the more different sectors, different companies use these systems and then rely on them. I think there's, that kind of obviously leads to the conclusion that we're going to need more data centers, more um, computational power available for dealing with um, this yes. kind of future digital infrastructure. Yes, that's correct. Um, I, I think the need for data centers to be connecting is quite uh, important and it is there, the, the demand as well. Um, and they are trying to catch up with that. I think getting these data centers through does take about five to six years and figuring out an appropriate location is also quite tricky. Given that the hyperscale data center sector is dominated by a few major players, namely Amazon, um, these large technology companies, um, there's been an increased um, interest in investment in urban scale edge data centers, which are smaller scale um, data centers built next to um, areas of significant demand. So we'll have to see if that becomes the main kind of focus of investment for companies in order to support this move towards AI within um, the data center sector. Um, but I still do imagine that um, these large scale developers are going to continue um, their process of um, developing these incredibly um, large hyperscale centers with places like Virginia being at the center of that become a hotbed for these large scale data centers built by these like, dominant technology companies. And naturally all of these increases every, every time we see a new data center going up, it increases that um, capacity and will do something to alleviate the um, the growing needs. But as the dealer was mentioning, the environmental impact that shouldn't be ignored, which is why I think it's a very positive sign we've got so many data centers working in tandem to provide renewable energy yeah, and working with PPAs. I think it's the question also um, how they can make the data centers more efficient, because if there's um, greater um, capacity needed to power AI-driven data centers, um, you're going to have to deploy more effective uh, means to increase the overall efficiency of it. Um, things such as um, liquid cooling could help significantly, but it's still in the early stages of deployment, so we'll have to see if it does become investable enough asset to ensure that efficiency measures are met. Yes, actually, generally, data centers have been um, quite aware of their role within their role in the green economy. So as you said, with the they're quite strong um, in terms of corporate power purchase agreements and have just generally been trying to be quite a responsible sort of corporate citizen. Another area of innovation that is expected to increase in its role is sector coupling as well, where they maybe um, sit in the middle of a multi-purpose facility that helps them with their security of supply, etc. So that might be something to keep looking out for. I wonder if we're going to see data centers go the way of hydrogen projects Obviously, I'm going to make this um, comparison, but um, the role of additionality in hydrogen projects is a huge talking point about making sure that you're not cannibalizing existing renewable production, but you're actually adding to the total amount of renewable energy available in the whole economy by pairing up a new hydrogen site with new renewable assets. I think we might, I, I would guess, perhaps, perhaps people are working on this already. If you're one of these people, please write to us. I want to hear about it. But perhaps there are uh, people who are looking at regulations for this already that um, incentivize the addition of renewable capacity with the additional demand of these data centers. Of course, it's not only the raw energy needs that go into managing these data centers. There's other environmental impacts we need to consider too, Dila? Yes, correct. So uh, water consumption is actually another um, huge 
part um, in the data center is energy efficiency. And currently the spotlight um, is predominantly around carbon emissions and the potential strategies to alleviate those um, effects. However, um, this matter of water will actually become increasingly more important and it is gaining significance as well. So these services really operate at their best um, within the, within a temperature span of 10 to 27 degrees Celsius. Um, and you really uh, need to be cooling them down quite consistently. Which goes um, back to what Zach was just saying about the liquid cooling solutions more exactly. efficiently using that power. Well, I was speaking to the managing director of um, Free Eye Infrastructure um, just yesterday, Scott Mosley, and he was talking about um, the location of the data center being incredibly important um, with areas such as, are you going to go on to that? Yes, exactly. But you can but just areas continue. such as the Nordics becoming increasingly hotbeds of data center construction because they fit within that temperature range you just um, mentioned previously. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's part of the solutions I was going to go into actually in a second. Location considerations are actually playing a huge role in this, um, in, in determining where to put them and how to make them the most energy efficient they can be. Um, and they play a vital role in reducing the environmental impact they might have. So countries that are naturally cooler, um, they have that have naturally cooler climates, such as Sweden and Finland, um, are preferred for hosting data centers because they require less water for cooling. Um, however, there is also a huge concentration of AI activities in regions with higher ambient temperatures like the Asia-Pacific, um, and that does pose challenges due to increase water requirements. But there... Um, there seems to be sometimes this almost trade-off between carbon efficiency and, and water consumption because when it's warmer, you can maybe make use of solar panels and then they can help um, with the energy efficiency, but then you're going to require more water to cool them down as well. Um, and another issue with water here is that you can only cool them down with fresh, clean water um, because obviously sort of sea salty water would um, lead to corrosion and it's just not the ideal. It's interesting the comparison with solar there because I remember when solar was still being talked about as a relatively new thing and the efficiency of solar power in high temperatures being much lower as with many electronics efficiency mm -hmm. does drop as temperature increases. So it's interesting that the same kind of problems are now being seen in this stage of the development of data centers and some of those solutions that brought up the efficiency of solar power in some of the hottest regions in the world could now be applied to data centers. But there are plenty of solutions that are being offered to this sort of data center problem, AI only being the most recent increase in, uh, most recent shift uh, and massive increase in demand that we've seen. What other solutions are there out there for um, dealing with the capacity problem? Yeah, definitely. I think so the innovation in this uh, area is really really quite rapid actually so there's a lot of people looking into this and and I think one of the main points that do keep coming up is that there is an increased need for transparency actually how much um, these giant um, data centers running these AI training and inference programs um, what their footprints actually look like currently those are not being transparently reported on um, however because obviously sort of the ESG reportings gaining such significance and becoming more and more important for investors in the public. Um, the hope is that those will, you know, uh, that companies will um, become a bit more cooperative when it comes to providing that sort of data. There's also computational power limitations um, where 
you know, the the prediction that the doubling of computing power every two years is actually being stretched at the moment and that these advancements might take a bit longer and they will become a lot more expensive. Um, and because these AI models do become more complex and demanding, um, the technology industry in many ways is reaching its physical limitations of current computing technologies, particularly in terms of circuit miniaturization. The future outlook on AI, I think there's going to be continued growth and expansion of these models um, and their computing power will continue to raise concerns um, about the escalating energy demands. Um, and I think it's there was also one statistic that said without corrective corrective measures, um, it is projected that by 2040, global power generation could be completely consumed by computing activities, which just further highlights the urgent need for actions, action, really. For people who are looking at investing in data centers, I can't imagine this will be, this talk will be putting anyone off hearing about all this additional computational needs, but our need for the future, we're going to need a lot more data centers Correct. on these trajectories. Yes, definitely. The The demand is definitely there and it keeps growing. So there shouldn't be any lack of confidence in that sector. Plenty of food for thought there. Thank you for sticking with us. This is a topic which I find fascinating and I really want us to return to in the future. So Dila, please do, do more research on this. <laughs> we, we love it. I'll do my best. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, it's been a very enjoyable episode and I'd like to thank our contributors. Thank you, Dila Shavici. Thank you for having me, Oliver. And Zachary Skidmore. Thank you, Oliver. And thank you to you for listening. This week, Inspiration has been in Madrid at our Financing European Renewables Summit. We're going to be bringing you full details and an update on that with some of the key attendees next week. I uh, hope you look forward to that. But in the meantime, goodbye. Goodbye.